Well, hey, um, as Pastor John Mark said a little while ago, we are taking a quick break from our At The Movie series. We'll be right back to that next week to finish it up. I apologize that there's no popcorn. There's no soda. We'll get that back for you next week. Uh, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be a great week to invite a friend. Um, I really hope that, that we can use this series to continue to spread the love of Jesus throughout our area. But today we're going to jump in a little bit to uh, what is the next generation all about? What's our role in their story? How do we lead them forward really well, no matter what our place in that is, whether it's directly um, connected to them or serving behind the scenes, what do we do to push them forward? But I think um, for you to understand a little bit about why I love uh, this generation so much, I want to tell you a little bit of my own story. Uh, I remember growing up in, in North Charleston, South Carolina. If you know where that is, you're impressed that I made it out. And uh, I, I grew up there and I went to this small Baptist church, uh, Cooper River Baptist Church. And a lot of the reason my family went was because of obligation. Uh, my, my grandmother was a firm believer. Man, I remember her walking through the house, singing worship songs all the time. But my parents, my, my um, dad and my mom, they kind of went because she made them, you know. Uh, she would drag them there every Sunday. She would call before church started to make sure we were up and getting dressed and we were going to be there. And um, I remember sitting in uh, this church. Uh, We sat on like the third row, assigned seats. You know, you have your spot. And if somebody sat in your spot, don't even get me started, right? So we sat in the third row. And I remember this particular Sunday when I was about five years old, I remember hearing this pastor, this preacher, talk about peace and talk about Jesus and how if we invited Jesus into our heart, we could experience this peace, right? And I was excited about that. I was like, man, give me some of that. I need that. I need it in my life because at home, that's not the experience that I have. So if somebody can answer that question for me, if somebody can teach me how to have peace amidst all this chaos that's going on in my home life, man, I'll... I'm all in. So I lean over to my mom. Uh, The pastor does an altar call at the end of the service, at the end of the sermon. I lean over to my mom and I say, mom, I got to go up front. I got to go up front. I got to talk to this pastor. I need this peace that this Jesus guy promises me. And so I lean over. She says, great, let's do it. So I go up. I have a conversation with the pastor. I don't remember what he says. We said some, a prayer together. And then I remember uh, the song ended and, uh, and he kind of turns me around to face the congregation, says some other things. And then everybody stands up. He says a quick prayer. And then they all just sort of bum rush me like, uh, like, you know, I don't know. I don't know what was about to happen, but because uh, I'm five and all of a sudden I'm just seeing like knees, right? And so uh, basically they all just kind of shake my hand and say congratulations. And I'm like, yeah, I did that. Like, let's go, go me, cool. good job. I was like, all I care about is what happens when I go home. And so I left that day feeling excited about what was gonna happen when I got home. There's gonna be peace, it's gonna be different. Everything's gonna change. But then I ended up, it's crazy, right? I ended up at home with the same people doing the same things, who have the same habits and the same attitudes. And I was like, this is not peaceful at all. Nothing has changed. What in the world is going on? And so I I wrestled with that for a little while as best as a five-year-old could, right? And I didn't understand the difference between the peace that Jesus provided and peace in my situation. And that was hard. And that was hard. And I, I desperately needed someone to help me navigate that. And I didn't have that person in my life. You know, my grandmother, as much as she loved Jesus, was very much a like, just got to take it on faith. You just got to push through and power through. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. I'm five, right? 
And uh, so I get to like middle school, early middle school, late middle school, uh, and I start to have these questions with no answers. And I start to wonder if God is really real, if Jesus is really who he said he was. And as middle school progresses, I get farther and farther away. High school comes and man, I, I don't even know, you know, as a Christian in name only, again, my, my family. Again, you know, I didn't have the, uh, the GPA to get into uh, such an institution, I suppose. But um, in college, I started to live like a harder life. So this party lifestyle, right? And, and by the time that I failed out of USC, my, at the end of my first year, I, uh, I, I wasn't following Jesus at all. Jesus at all. And so I continued into this lifestyle and I uh, got this job doing construction. It was a friend of my dad's. And I was just living this life of doing whatever I wanted, uh, whenever I wanted. Um, but eventually, this is how all stories change, right? Eventually, I met this girl. And, and that, that statement always goes one of two ways, right? It's never like, I met this girl and, and life just continued exactly how it was, right? It's always, I met this girl and things uh, quickly descended into chaos. Or I met this girl, I met this girl and she challenged me to, to be better, to, to be more. And thankfully, that's what happened uh, in my story. It was in my 20s, I met who, the, Ashley, who would later become my wife, and she's inviting me back into this relationship with Jesus. And she did it in such a way that I felt like she was, she was saying these things for me, not at me. You know, she was inviting me because she knew that there was more for me than what I saw for myself. And so I began this slow journey back to Jesus. And I remember through the process, I kept waiting for this like moment, right? Like this, this just crazy spirit-filled moment that my life went from, from zero to 10, but it never happened. I just sort of slowly got back uh, into following him and to uh, trusting him and, and loving him. And I, I fell in love with, with, honestly, with worship, the music. It really kind of just moved my heart. It spoke to my heart and it, it, it made me feel close to God and made me feel this peace that I've been looking for my whole life. And I fell in love with this idea of worshiping Jesus. And I really, really wanted to serve somewhere. And so I was like, can I put these two things together? I was playing music in, in a cover band, like this 80s cover band, which was a lot of fun, but really not the situation I wanted to continue to be in. And so I left the band and I joined the worship team at my church. And the easiest spot to get into, because I wanted to play as often as possible, was... Um, student ministry worship at an offsite campus. You can just show up, you know, like literally you can show up and say like, I have a guitar. And they're like, great, you're on the team. And so literally that's what I did. I just showed up, I had a guitar, I played in this worship team and that was the, that was the goal. You know, like I was like, all right, nailed it. This, I'm gonna show up and keep doing construction. The pay is pretty good. I'm gonna do this worship thing and that's it. I'm gonna check the box and, and life's gonna be good. Well, eventually um, the, the guy that was leading that team decided to step down. He had gotten a job offer from a church to go be a worship pastor and we were excited for him. But the, the youth pastor at that campus was like, I don't have this skill set. I don't know any of these words, what, are, what you're saying. Um, so we're probably just not gonna have a worship team. And I was like, whoa, hold on. That's not how that should be. This is not how that should be. These kids need to, to be able to worship. They need to be able to explore what a relationship with Jesus through worship looks like in their space, in their language. And this is not how it should be. And I said, you know what? I have no clue what I'm doing. 
but I'll do it. And he's like, great. Because again, you could just show up, right? Like, you're like, I'll have that thing over there. And he's like, perfect, do it. You take that, you're in charge of tablecloths now, right? And so um, I did it. I started leading this team. It was a few months later that he actually stepped down from doing youth ministry as well. And I uh, had a conversation with that campus pastor. And he's like, you know, there's a young life uh, in the area. I think we're just going to partner with them and sort of outsource our youth ministry. And I was like, I mean, I love Young Life. They're a great organization, but I, I just feel like this is not how this should be. You see, students need a way to connect to the whole church. And if we outsource their ministry, what happens when they graduate? Where do they go from there? Do they come back? How do we get them back? What does that even mean? And so I said, this isn't how it should be. Can I just sort of lead this ministry? And he's like, absolutely not. I'm like, okay, that checks out. I see how you got there. He's like, but how about this? I'll partner you with a parent in the ministry and you guys lead it together. And I said, I don't love it because I want to be in charge, but cool, we'll do it. And so for a few months, we did that together. Um, Eventually he did kind of step down and transition that leadership over to me. But I learned something about myself throughout that whole process. I learned that when I see a situation and, and it's not how it should be, and I have any sort of like skills or, or connection or passion around it, I can't just say, all right, this isn't how it should be. Well, good luck with that. See you later. I could not act. I couldn't step into it and try it to at least make an impact, to at least do something to move it forward. I just couldn't. I couldn't. I could not at least try. And, and from there, like I said, the whole plan was to just show up and play guitar. But all of a sudden, I was a youth pastor at this church campus, and I had no clue what I was doing. But thank God, uh, there were some great people around me that really helped mentor me and lead me forward. But I wonder today, is there, have you ever had one of those moments, right, where you look at a situation and you say, this is not how this should be. This is not how this should be. This is not how this should go. This is a little off. This is wrong. This is not how it should be. Because for me, that's what I see when I look outside, right? When I look at the world, when I look out there, I think, I don't think this is how this should be. I don't think this is how this should be. And I think at least to a certain degree, we're all there, right? I mean, is there anybody in here that looks out there and goes, oh man, this is perfect. This is exactly, I mean, like check, check, check. We're about here batting a thousand. No, to a certain extent, we all look out there and we think this is not how this should be. And if, I mean, if you don't, maybe, maybe your heart is the thing that is not how it should be. Because when I look out there, I see a lot of, a lot of problems, a lot of issues and a lot of things that are just not right, right? That's the easy part. That's the easy part. I think we've all had that moment before, but what happens a lot of times is we get to the follow-up question that comes up in our hearts when we, ask the, when we say this is not how it should be. And that follow-up question is, but what can I do? But what can I do? What impact can I make? What choice do I have? What can I do when the problems are so big and I'm just so me, what can I do? Today, I want to uh, share a story with you guys from scripture about what happens when just one person takes that seriously. When one person looks at a situation and says, this is not how this should be, and they step in. What happens when one person answers the call? And as we look at this story, I want to challenge you to think about it through the lens of the next generation. Because we will look at their future. When we look at their future and think, man, this probably isn't how it should be. 
I want you to know this. I want you to know first and foremost that you have a role to play. You have a role to play. I don't care if you feel like you're too young. I don't care if you feel like you're too old, if you're too cool or not cool enough. I don't care what, what you're carrying into this situation. You have a role to play. You're called to be part of the story. You're not called to sit on the sidelines. You're not called to observe from a distance. You're called to be part of the story and you're called to make an impact. You're not called to just show up and check a box. You're not called to just complete a task. You're called to make a difference. You're called to make an impact. And so the story we're gonna look at is a story I affectionately refer to as the story of the little king. And you'll see, I, I mean that quite literally. It's in 2 Kings. We're gonna look a little bit at chapter 21 through 23. I'm not, I'm not gonna dig into all of it. That's a lot, but uh, that's where the story is found. Let me give you some background on where we are first. We're gonna be talking about the nation of Israel today. This is God's chosen people. These are the people that God has said, through you, I will make a great nation. And through that nation, you will lead people to me. Israel has, uh, you know, some good times and some bad times. When they start out, they're ruled by a series of judges, but they demand a king. God puts a guy named Saul on the throne who checks all the boxes for what you want in a king. He looks the part. He's got this commanding voice. He's a good strategist when it comes to the military. So Saul takes the throne and Saul is not, he, he's not crushing it. Okay, and to the point where God says, hey, Saul, I need you to do exactly this at the end of the battle. And he's like, great, heard, perfect. And then he did something completely different. And God goes, yeah, we're done here. This isn't gonna work out. So Saul gets replaced by a guy named David. And David would go down in history as Israel's greatest king. Don't get me wrong. David made some, some serious mistakes, but David was a repentant man. He turned back to God and eventually he would be known as the man after God's own heart. At the end of David's life, his son Solomon takes the throne and Solomon is the wisest king in Israel's history. That's God comes to him in a dream and says, Solomon, you can have whatever you want. Whatever you want. For real? Blank check, blank check. Okay, I have some thoughts. But Solomon says, give me the wisdom to lead your people. And God says, you know what, Solomon, you got it. And because you asked for wisdom and you didn't ask for riches, you didn't ask for victory over your enemies, I'm gonna give you the complete package. You're gonna have all of those things. You're gonna have the wisdom that you asked for and all of the things that you didn't as well. And so Solomon actually leads Israel into what's called its golden age. It's when they were the most prosperous. They've got stores of gold. They build this beautiful temple. Uh, Solomon has this crazy palace, but Solomon kind of gets a little off at the end of his life and, and, uh, and, and drifts from God. He drifts away, uh, begins to kind of worship other gods, like mixed cultures and th uh, things like that, and it does not go well. From Solomon, things quickly descend into chaos. I mean, you're looking at this and you're like, okay, David from Saul, and then Solomon, right? Like quickly, quickly, quickly into chaos. Israel goes into a civil war and the country is split into two kingdoms, the Northern kingdom of Judah, which is two of the tribes and the Southern kingdom of Israel, which is the other 10. This story is gonna zoom in on Judah and a little bit of their history. And we go from king to king to king, which is just a string of bad kings until we get to a guy named Hezekiah. Hezekiah is a bit of a bright spot, sort of. He starts uh, pretty strong, doesn't finish well. And then we go terrible to worse to absolute worse. And uh, we go from Hezekiah to Manasseh, who literally was the absolute worst. Like scripture says that pretty plainly. And then we get to Amnon, okay? Amnon's Manasseh's son. And just for fun, let's read Amnon's entire story. It's very short. 
It says this, Amnon was 22 years old when he began to reign. I think about myself at 22 and I'm like, that is not wise. And he reigned for two years in Jerusalem. All right, he didn't even make it through two years. His mother, he had a mom, she had some family members. And it says he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as Manasseh, his father had done. So he sees this example and he does that. He walked in all the ways in which his father walked, served the idols that his father served and worshiped them. He abandoned the Lord, the God of his fathers, and did not walk in the way of the Lord. The servants of Amnon, these are the people closest to him, conspired against him and put the king to death in his house. But the people of the land struck down all of those who had conspired against King Amnon, and the people of the land made Josiah, his son, the king in his place. So we go from Manasseh to his son Amnon to his son Josiah. And you're like, man, we're on a kind of a string here. I don't know if this is going to work. I don't know if this is a good, that brings us to where we're going to hang out today. We're going to talk about Josiah and his reign. Here's what's crazy about Josiah. The beginning of it is in uh, 2 Kings 22. It says, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. Okay. It's just, I have a nine-year-old daughter. Nope. I love her. She's the sweetest child I've ever met. She loves everybody, but I am not putting her in any sort of leadership capacity. Okay. This is a bad idea. This is a bad plan. Especially if you have like the guy before, this is the only example he's ever seen. The only, the only thing he's ever seen as far as a king goes is his dad, Amnon, and his grandfather, Manasseh, who were the worst, right? Now we've got an eight-year-old child on the throne. And I think about like what that would look like. And I spent a lot of time last night building a Lego throne because I think that is what it would look like. Sadly, I left that Lego throne in my car. It's right out there. (laughs) See me after, I'll show it to you. Um, So let's just carry on. Let's just see what happens next, right? He was eight years old when he began to reign. He reigned for 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adia of Bozkath. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He walked in all the ways of David, his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Eight years old. This is not how it should be. It says in the 18th year of King Josiah, so he's 26 years old at this point, says the king sent uh, Shaphan, the son of Azalea, son of Meshulam, the secretary to the house of the Lord. So he's got this guy that is kind of his assistant, his secretary, and he says, I need you to go up to the temple. And long story short, he sends him up to the temple because he wants to rebuild it. The temple is in ruins from bad king after bad king. It's in complete disarray, but they've continued to kind of accept the offering. So he sends Shaphan up. He says, I need you to go up there, tell the priests, like, open up the building fund. Let's fix this place up. Let's get it back to the way it should be. And so Shaphan goes up. Here's what I kind of look at. It's crazy that this eight-year-old would turn that direction right after the examples that that he's seen. So when it relates to your life and as it relates to the lives of, of the kids and students coming up behind us, I hope you know that nobody else's past gets to determine your future. No one else's past gets to determine your, your future. Josiah only saw bad kings. He only saw people who were doing the absolute wrong thing. And yet he made a decision to change. 
Fast forward 18 years, he's 26, sends the secretary up to the temple. And long story short, he begins this renovation project. I mean, he's like, you know what we're gonna do, Chafin? We're gonna go full Chip and Joanna. We're going, this is our fixer upper moment. All right, we're gonna get the scary house and we're gonna turn it into, it's gonna have curb appeal, sir. It's gonna be the highlight of the neighborhood. He sends him up there, Shaphan says, hey, we gotta get this thing uh, fixed. And, and scripture says that the priest in the process finds a book and gives it to Shaphan and Shaphan brings this book back to the king. And it picks up, it says in verse 10 and 11, then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And, and nobody really knows what this book is. They're just like, I don't know, it's kind of cool. Maybe it's like Lord of the Rings or something, I don't know. And Shaphan read it before the king. It says, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. He was given this book and turns out to be the book of the law. Some scholars believe it was the entire law, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Some believe it was just the book of Deuteronomy. Either way, Josiah got to hear for the first time the word of God. And this book had been lost for so long that people didn't even know what it was. They were like, oh, it's a book. It's just a book. You read it. And I don't even know why he asked Shaphan to read it to him. I, you know, again, he had like bad examples growing up. Maybe this kid was desperate for a bedtime story. But either way, Shaphan reads the book. And this one read through, this book completely changes his life. Josiah begins to institute these major reforms throughout the land, turning people back to the Lord, telling them we've got to follow God. We've got to do this thing the right way. After one read through, there's no way he knew it all, right? There's no way he knew it all. I mean, depending on how you look at the math of it, whether it starts at five or 25, I've been in relationship with Jesus for somewhere between 35 and 15 years. And I still don't know it all. I got a Bible degree and I still don't know it all. Somebody at a, uh, the kids uh, party the other night used a scripture name in this game that we were playing. And I'm like, I literally have never heard this name before ever. And yet there it was right there in the book of Isaiah. And I'm like, okay, cool, good. Good reminder that I do not know everything. But you know what the truth is? You don't have to know everything to lead, to follow Jesus yourself or to lead others to do the same. And Josiah shows us this right here. I'll tell you when it relates to next gen ministry, one of the things I hear the most often right behind the I'm too old uh, comment is I just don't know enough about the Bible. You don't have to know it all. You don't have to know everything to follow the Lord or to lead others to do the same. You just need a willing heart and open hands. So willing heart and open hands. Let's jump back into the story in chapter 23. It says this, the king sent and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. Man, he gets everybody together, the leadership team. And it says, and the king went up to the house of the Lord and with him, all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great, the people who have these crazy big influence all the way down to the children who at that time and place were just property. All of them, everybody got them together. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. 
and all the people joined in the covenant. You don't have to know everything to lead people to follow Jesus. We can't give somebody what we don't have. You want your kids to love Jesus? You better show them how to love Jesus. You want your kids to come into a worship space and, and worship with authenticity, with unveiled faces? You better walk in this place with authenticity and unveiled faces. You want your kids to develop good spiritual disciplines, reading the Bible and prayer? You better be in your Bible and praying. We lead best when we lead by example. And the story continues. Josiah goes on. He removes all of the pagan temples. And in fact, he goes so far as to put the pagan priests to death. And he turns their temples into graveyards, literally spreading their ashes over these temples. And I know that that sounds a little harsh. I get it. It's probably a bigger step than I would take in that situation. <laughs> but what you have to understand is that, that these pagan priests were offering child sacrifices as, as a form of worship. They were doing these lewd acts as worship to false gods. They were deep, deep, deep into idolatry and leading the people to do the same. And so while it sounds harsh, I think honestly, it's, a, it's rather fitting because the truth is the only place that idolatry will ever lead us or the next generation is to death. And what I love about Josiah is that he goes so far as to remove anything that would get in the way of them following Jesus. And I, I don't recommend we try to do that for the city. That's beyond our jurisdiction, but I do recommend that we do that in our own hearts. As we follow Jesus and we wanna lead others to do the same, we have to fight to remove everything that would draw our heart away from his. And I'm talking about taking drastic steps sometimes. We gotta get serious about getting rid of sin and take these drastic measures to protect ourselves and our homes from the temptations that pull us away from Jesus. That's what this was all about. It was all about bringing a nation back to the Lord, leading his people back to the feet of Jesus. Let's jump to the end of the story and see how Josiah was remembered. I challenge you to remember how his dad was remembered. Not great. This is how scripture remembers this eight-year-old king that was forced onto the throne. It says this, before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart with all of his soul and with all of his might, according to all of the law of Moses, nor did any arise after him. This is what happens when one person says, this is not how this should be. I'm gonna do something about it. I'm gonna make a difference. I'm gonna make an impact here. This is not how this should be. And on my watch, it's not how it's going to be. What Josiah does is that he creates a legacy that consistently points others to the Lord. And that is the challenge for us today. What legacy are we creating? What legacy are we leading? I love the way that scripture remembers Josiah. I love the words that it uses where it says that, that he turned to the Lord with all of his heart, all of his soul and all of his might. That wasn't just a quippy saying or some well-wordsmith words. It was actually a direct quote from that book that he found that changed his life. There's a passage in Deuteronomy 6. It's called the Shema. And Shema literally just means to hear, to listen actively. 
It's one of the most famous prayers used over and over again in the Jewish culture still to this day. And Josiah's epitaph comes directly from it. It says this, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And I love this passage so much because this is what it means to follow the Lord and lead others to do the same. Man, here today. But I, I think I've gotten this passage a little bit wrong my whole life. I was literally reading it this week and I was like, whoa. You ever had a moment like that when you're reading scripture, like you're very familiar passage and all of a sudden it's like, you just kind of wake up to, to something you never realized before. That moment for me was that this passage, it's not directed to any individual. It's not even directed to individual families. It's directed to the entire nation of Israel. All of them, the whole people, when somebody says to me, teach this to your children, my first thought is Riley and Piper. Those are my children. Those are the, the ones born to me and my wife. But again, this isn't directed at a family. It's directed at a nation. I think when God said, teach them to your children, he was challenging the entire nation of Israel to take responsibility for every child in the nation. For every child. Not just your own. Not even just the ones that maybe live in your neighborhood or are friends with your kids. Every child. God invites this entire nation to take responsibility for the faith journey of every child. And today I wanna to leave you with that same invitation. If we, the church, the gathering took responsibility for every child, what could that look like? What difference could we make? What impact could we make on their future? Look around, ask yourself, is this how it should be? Is this how it should be? Yeah, here we sit sometimes wondering, but what impact can I make? What difference can I make? Truthfully, this is what I see when I look at the future of this church specifically the gathering right here, right now. This is what I see. I see the gathering as a place where every child and every teenager who walks through our doors will have an extended family. Where every one of them would have a person 
And every one of them would be able to discover who they are because of who Jesus is. That's what I see. As I read this story of Josiah, I have so many questions. Mostly because there's not a lot known about those 18 years, right? We put this eight-year-old kid on the throne, right? And then it fast forwards to 18 years later. What did he do? What did he do with those 18 years? What was the motivation for sending Shaphan up to the temple in the first place? I have no idea. I really wish I did, but I have a guess. I have a guess. And my guess is that he had a person. I don't know who it was. Don't know what role they played in his life. But my best guess is that there was a person who loved him. And there was a person who cared for him. There was a person who saw where his future was headed and said, this is not how this should be. And instead of sitting idly by, instead of fearing, telling the king that he was going in the wrong direction, instead of sitting off to the side, hoping that someone else would step in, they said, this is how, not how it should be. And it's not gonna be this way on my watch. And they stepped into his life and they called him to more. And now it's our turn. It's our turn to do that for the generation coming up behind us because this is not how it should be. We have to look at their future and see where it's headed and what it's like out there. Because the truth is it hasn't changed since they put this child on the throne. What's out there is the same as it was back then. Out there is loneliness that we're masking as connection. Out there is brokenness that we're, that we're telling our children is actually them just expressing themselves. Out there is idolatry that is being masked as purpose. And out there is the celebration of sin that is being masked as love and acceptance. That's what's out there. And this is not how it should be. But in here is different. In here, we have what they don't have out there because out there it's just death. But in here, in here we have community. In here, we have true family. In here, we have the actual source of real identity and real purpose. That's what we have in here. And in here, we have the truth that there is something more for them, that there is so much more than anything that could be offered out there. In here, we have hope. And that is what they desperately need out there. Let's not keep that hope in here. Let's pass it on. Let's let them know. Let's look out there and say, this is not how it should be. And this is not how it will be on our watch. We will make an impact. We will make a difference. And we will change the future for a generation, leading them back to Jesus. That's how it should be. I'm gonna ask you today, as we talk about hope, you're like, man, that sounds good. Do you have it? 
Do you have that hope? Do you have that community and family? Do you have that identity? Do you have that purpose? Because all of that stuff comes from one source. And that source is Jesus Christ. And I wanna tell you that hope, that identity, that purpose, that family, community, peace, all of that comes from Him alone. And so today, if you're sitting in this room and you're like, man, I wish I could get some of that. I wanna invite you to begin that relationship today with Jesus. I wanna invite you to begin to put your trust in Him, to give your life to Him, to follow Him. Because when we do that, He begins to replace our brokenness with healing and He allows us to lead others to do the same. What I missed when I was five was that He may not change your situation immediately, but if you let him, he'll change your heart and give you the strength to move through that situation and be part of the change that's coming. If you're in a place today where you're ready to receive that hope and start that journey with him, it begins with a simple prayer. I'd ask that everybody close your eyes and bow your heads. If you're in that place today and you wanna invite him into your life and begin a relationship with him, would you just pray this simple prayer with me? Jesus, I need you. I need you. I've been looking for hope. I've been looking for peace. Would you come into my life? Would you begin to lead me? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.